0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about life, culture, politics, all through the prism of food. And this week, we're digging deep into the roots of Jamaican food culture with Riaz Phillips, winner of this year's Jane Grigson Trust Award for West Wings, Recipes, History and Tales from Jamaica.
1: And the roots of the Caribbean are so diverse that you don't need a Caribbean supermarket, you'd be able to find those same ingredients at a Chinese shop or an Indian family-owned shop um, because of those roots.
0: He won a Young British Foodie Award in 2017 for his self-published book, Bellyful, which was a guide of history to the Caribbean eateries which have shaped the landscape of food in the UK since the 1950s. By 2018, he was one of the names on the Observer Food Monthly's annual list of 50 things we love. I asked him what all these accolades mean to a recorder of his own cultural heritage.
1: Yeah, it's always amazing when those kind of things happen because writing can be such an insular solo pursuit and you have no idea if all that time has gone to waste or if anyone's even going to buy it or read it. And so it's, yeah, it's one thing for me that's amazing that people even read it in the first place and then people, you know, think it's enjoyable. So yeah, it means a lot to
0: me. It's the same thing for podcasting, let me tell you. Let me tell you also what the Jane Grigson Trust Award judges said. So Geraldine Holt was the chair of judges and of course was Jane Grigson's best friend. And she said, Riaz brings his fresh, honest insight into the food culture of Jamaica and West Winds deserves the widest possible audience. But it was Sarit Packer who was another judge and co-owner of Honey & Co. I thought it said something really, really profound. I love the connection Riaz makes between ingredients and cooking. And as someone who is a child of immigrants, I identify with the feeling of being in limbo in both worlds, Uh which comes across strongly in Riaz's writing.
1: Yeah, it's been one of the amazing things to find out since I started writing, how many people, not just from my culture, but people from other backgrounds, people from other um, migrant um, communities, even if that's like an internal British migrant uh, movement or, be you know, wider, continental. Um, it's that feeling of, especially when you're born in a place that's not where your family are from, you have this thing that me and my friends always talk about. It's like, from the outside, people see it as like being 50-50, like you're half one place and half another. And usually, if sometimes it feels like you're like a 100 of both or even zero of both, like you're both from both of those places, but you're kind of also not from either place. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, that middle passage of uh, unknowing. And so, yeah, food is, for me, has always been one of those things that helps connect.
0: I hear that story from so many different people that it's actually when you're in your early 20s that you start thinking about, who am I? Zoya Ajonya is another example of somebody like you who grew up in London Um, with this kind of dual identity and through food and the adventures in food. She went back to Ghana, for example, and talked to her grandmother about her grandmother's food and through her food found out who she was in in so many nuanced ways. And it's interesting, isn't it? So did you feel that when you were growing up as a teenager, as as a child, that there was this other story that you weren't quite understanding?
1: No, I wouldn't say so much in that Regardless, I completely understand that. However, my family I, were always very staunch in their culture and making sure that we knew about all the different foods and uh, the countries as a kid. So my family, predominantly from Jamaica, but also Trinidad and Guyana. And so those foods were something, and that culture and the music is something that is pretty much in us since we were born. So like I said, we kind of felt like we we had that connection to the place, even though some of us had never been there or only been there a few times. Um, So for me, it was more a sense of having that in me um, and wanting to spread that to a wider audience in the UK, especially given that the community that my family are from have been in the UK for so long now.
0: You write about your grandmother, Mm -hmm. you know, she was in pain, yet she would walk all the way to Ridley Road in order to buy particular vegetables to cook particular dishes. And you didn't really pay much attention to that as a child. And it was only when you were older, when you'd been to university and you you say you were in the corporate world and you were thinking back to that time when your grandmother was paying such attention to the food from your heritage. And you realised that there was that disconnect. Can you talk a little bit about what that disconnect was between what your friends, your world was all about in terms of understanding Caribbean culture. We'll go on to Jamaican culture later, but Caribbean culture and the day to day reality of growing up at home with your grandmother.
1: It's interesting. As I think my one of my oddest memories goes back to when I'd bring my packed lunch to a new school that I joined in North London uh, up until that point. There was no such thing as Caribbean food or Jamaican food. It was just food that we ate at home. And it wasn't until I got to school that I realized that. It was this thing that was completely different and alien to people. Um, And it's always been very interesting to me how some foods and some ingredients can be so pivotal to people's lives. And then their next door neighbor can never have heard of it. Especially in a place like Hackney where my grandma lived. Where it was English people, Turkish people, uh, people from West Africa, people from Eastern Europe. And I just found that that fascinating and so it was yeah it's kind of connecting those dots.
0: Yeah and and you say that you know when you came out of university and, and you know living in the world of work a lot of your friends were going off to to live in Hackney as part of the gentrification process and that must have been even more disconnecting you know your home is suddenly being gentrified and people kind of getting interested in the kind of the the perhaps the 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 toppings of different cultures rather than actually really understanding what that was all about. Was that what drove you first to write Bellyful, your first book, which won you the Young British Foodies Award?
1: Yeah, definitely. Part of that was very pivotal to that process. I Also, on a very base level, found at the time, there just happened to be a bunch of books about East London food, London food that basically featured zero Caribbean content inside it. Um, and I was of the opinion that even if they had featured one, that wouldn't be good enough because the Caribbean communities in the UK are so different and diverse that it really needs is kind of its own thing to celebrate it and to champion it and to illustrate it. Um, and yeah, that was one of the main reasons that kind of drove me to that. And then also my grandma after she passed away and I realized I didn't really speak to her that much about where where she came from in her early days in the UK and what it was like back then. And I was kind of trying to learn more about that personal history through other people's stories and then kind of relating it to myself.
0: It was filling that vacuum that you talk about. That's what Bellyful is about. That was a very personal thing. West Winds is for the rest of us. It's for the world, isn't it? Is it for the world or is it for Britain to really understand more about Jamaican food? It's this journey that you go to Jamaica for you but for the rest of us as well to understand you know more about the food that we're that's all around us who's it for yeah it's definitely
1: written for uh through initially a kind of British lens obviously that's where I grew up and where we grew up and relating that to different communities around the UK not just London but places like Birmingham, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester that have a strong Caribbean community and also large Asian and West African communities and just helping people understand the roots of the Caribbean are so diverse that you don't need a Caribbean supermarket. Like you'd be able to find those same ingredients at a Chinese shop or an Indian family-owned shop um, because of those roots. So yeah. yeah, predominantly like less so because of obviously British Empire. A lot of people here kind of understand those links, um, and obviously less so somewhere like France or Germany.
0: Yeah. Well, there are lots of similarities that you found, and we'll we'll go into that. But what was interesting is that you do have this tourist lens that you're looking through. It, it, you know, Jamaica is very much yours, but in the sense, you, it's not yours at all. You don't know it when you're taking us by the hand and exploring it really for the first time. And you get found out when you ask for, for food at a stall, you know, the stallholder knows absolutely you're not from around here. How did that feel?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, like I said, you're at home but you're not at home um you're from somewhere and you're not from somewhere so i could be somewhere in london and somebody asked me where i'm from it's exactly the same experience so um it's up to i guess each person to individually decide for themselves like where they feel like they're from and where they identify with
0: uh, and what did you feel because it
1: was the foods and the culture of my family and my heritage i always did feel at home regardless of those kind of funny little interactions i think There's evidently a big difference between me going back to Jamaica and navigating around versus somebody who's got no connection there whatsoever.
0: Yeah. And what you found were a lot of stories and folklore, which makes this book really fascinating. It's not just the foods that you find. It's not the way that you find the foods when you find pineapples growing on the ground. You're surprised. You kind of always thought somehow they might grow on trees. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. But actually, the stuff that's very grounding is that you bump into the stories and the folklores that, that came from your own childhood. That's what's so rich about some of these recipes. They're not just recipes. In fact, the recipes Recipes
1: are not written down, they're oral traditions. Yeah, I mean, I first encountered that a while back when I first tried to make a mini cookbook not too long ago. Um, And it's a time when I was living away from home. So I emailed my mum and asked her if she could send over uh, some recipes for some of the things that she cooked pretty much every single week. Um, And she was completely stumped. And she said, I'm going to have to come back to because I actually have no idea what, what the recipe is or like how to write it down or how to translate that. And it took a yeah it took her a good while to kind of convert the, that those thoughts and that process into a like a legible process for other people to follow. Yeah, and I found that was super interesting. I know that's something that a lot of people can relate to.
0: Yeah, comes from a lot of different cultural backgrounds as well. The the bumping into kind of British colonial history in Jamaica is really interesting. Um, you know, the, the difference between a Jamaican patty and a Cornish pasty, for example. The colonial history and what you found when you went to Jamaica.
1: Yeah, I think the underlying thing that I found, and I'm not sure I'd say realised, but definitely hit home was that for the most part, you can't separate Caribbean history from British history. They're kind of one and the same. There's idea of, you know, like a Black History Month. I mean, that's British history because modern black histories cannot be separated from Britain and Europe. Um, and what's, that's what's really interesting about when you see those things in the food they're kind of like everyday reminders of those links to each other and so yeah i think a patty literally there's no other way of saying it. it's just like a caribbean version of a pasty Yes, yeah. you're, you're just taking pasty and filling it with like very lovely spiced ingredients spicing the the dough i think that's one of the things people meant like see in this book is that everything is seasoned everything is spiced and those spices in themselves have so much history in them
0: absolutely You know something I hadn't thought about was when you talk about um, the influence of the indentured Indian workers, you know, sent Uh over by the British to work in Jamaica, and the impact of their spices on 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 the food that you find in Jamaica. You know, let's actually go into your first food moment. Um, It's a curry, curry you say, came from those indentured Indian workers. Mm-hmm. You're talking about raw plantain curry, but actually, you know, curry as a thing came from India. Yeah. And therefore, British colonial history.
1: Yeah, it's like this really interesting flow of people and memories and culture around the world via and initiated through somewhere else in the world. Um, and these are the things that are just, yeah, they're kind of fascinating to me and very interesting to see in jamaica definitely more influence in other regions of the caribbean but in jamaica you can definitely see that underlying effect of that and so i think the raw planting curry is one of those really interesting things because in jamaica i don't want to say that food stopped evolving because obviously for the most part things always change and things evolve but it definitely seemed like there became a moment in time where an imaginary meeting came together and they were like this is what is going to be jamaican food And these are the staples. And so with that being said, it can sometimes be quite hard to find new things when you go from town to town and you see all the many different um, hole in the walls and shacks and restaurants. A lot of them are saying a lot of the same things. And I found that a lot of the times it was the vegan restaurants and shops that were owned by people from the Rastafari culture who really were experimenting and trying new things um, and have been doing so for for decades now for a long time and so this raw plantain curry is one of those ones that kind of brings that shock factor to especially the most traditional of caribbean food eaters because first of all it's a a raw curry and it's a plantain curry and those things yeah it can be hard to get your head around on an issue especially for plantain because most people are used to having that boiled or fried or baked so the idea of eating it raw is can be a shocker to some people
0: Yeah. And it is bringing together that idea of, you know, a a place is about the people who live there as well as the foods that are available um, through different seasons. And that all comes together in that recipe really, really nicely. You, You talk about the ITAL diet coming from religious abstinence. And you suggest that that is a British colonial legacy as well from um, Puritanism.
1: Yeah, I think the Rastafari culture is really interesting because it's very African-centric, completely African-centric. I mean, that's the root of the religion is kind of repatriation to the African continent. In itself, the fact that they are reliant on the Bible is kind of like a a direct link to the British Empire because, you know, that's that quote about... I don't on a boat trip we came with such and such and they came with guns and bibles and the effect that that had on the country um the wider Caribbean and West Africa and yeah I think it's fascinating that in the Caribbean there's a lot of these things that we kind of claim as ours these things that we believe they're Jamaican in their roots and in fact when you dig deeper they very much have like that British that British fingerprint on them which goes back to you know mm-hmm. that idea that we can't separate those two histories which is Yeah, why I'm kind of passionate about this particular niche and spreading that forward just to bring home that this is part of British history and British culture and stuff that more people should know about.
0: No, absolutely. And another example of that is your second food moment, the turmeric rice and pumpkin mash. Again, vegan, but you're talking about the culinary skills. And this is where British history does kind of, you know, disconnect from a lot of the immigrant cultures that have made Britain, Britain. There's a lot of cookery skills in immigrant cultures, whereas Britain lost cooking skills many, many, many decades ago. You talk about the resourcefulness of Jamaican cookery schools in this particular recipe. Yeah, especially for this
1: recipe and the way I kind of stumbled across this amazing roadside fruit store where the owner essentially was boasting that he could make anything and he'd just go to his garden, get the things and then make it for me the next day. And that kind of hit home as like, that's essentially, you know, what farm to table cooking is. And one of those things at the time I noticed was a real buzzword in a lot of these world restaurant rankings at the top, you know, farm to table dining. And I just found that, kind of comparison really interesting and then the skills to be able to cultivate all of those different fruits and vegetables and spices and then prepare it pretty much the only tool he had was a machete which in Jamaica and the wider Caribbean is like a catch-all kitchen tool it can do everything people peel with it chop with it can blend with it do all sorts of things with it and just seeing this guy there and the idea that he's kind of relegated to this corner of culinary food and may never have the same esteem as other people um, in other parts of the world was like i don't want to say it was sad but it kind of said to me you know if he's kind of stuck in that niche maybe so am i um but the, the best i can do is celebrate him and champion him and so yeah and also the food that came out of that was incredible
0: well you're talking about access to market here aren't you i mean you know people have been making fabulous food all over the world uh since the beginning of time and feeding their people and their families from the food of the land my grandmother was the best cook in the world nobody ever ate her food other than her family but she was the most incredibly resourceful woman because when you don't have a lot of money you have to make something as tasty as you Uh possibly can um that's a a long way from the kind of the, the food competitions and the, the accolades and the Michelin stars and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, you know, it, is it not good enough? to be able to be the most amazing, resourceful chef for your community and for everyone to absolutely adore what you do. I wonder how your guy, your stallholder, would feel about your worry about him not being able to be suitably recognised, although you, he is suitably recognised because you've written about him in your book.
1: Yeah, and he's also really popular in the area well, as there well. There you go. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the worry was less so about him individually, I guess, being recognised by other people in the area. It was more so about, you know, this is my culture and heritage. And on a wider stage, I felt like that is a thing that wasn't held in the same esteem on other platforms as well as up food from other places in the world. Yeah. And I think that was, I guess, the slight worry and disdain was about yeah. that.
0: It's it's about access, isn't it? It's about access to education. Mm-hmm. It's about access to the, the system that elevates food. In your third food moment, you talk about St. John, the restaurant that kind of made Nose to Tail Mm -hmm, one of the best restaurants in the world. And Mm -hmm. you talk about Nose to Tail in terms of your mother's oxtail recipe. Um, Tell us why you wanted to really kind of associate it with that incredibly sort of gastro term when this is literally food from your childhood.
1: Yeah, it's just everything goes back to those disconnects. Especially when, when I talk to my friends who aren't from the Caribbean community, and a lot of them, sometimes they're scared or intimidated by the food from where I'm from, or they the key thing is that a lot of the times they say they don't know about it, or they've never, you know, they've never heard of things. And so it was mainly just the kind of like, person, like a funny way for me to draw that link. And that's why I kind of mentioned those restaurants who do Nose to Tell Dining, because it's like, you know about, you do know about the food, which is, yeah, this is the thing I'm trying to get to, the point I'm trying to get to. It's yeah. not to say that. You'll
0: go and eat it in St. John, but actually we have been eating it since I was born.
1: Yeah, it's not to say that necessarily the food at your local Caribbean takeaway is going to be as good as St. John, but it is to say that, like you can't say you don't know about it, you do. And it's just kind of bringing that home that you do know about this food, you know more about it than you think. And it's not it's not something that's adversarial, it's more like celebrating that connects of yeah. foods around the world.
0: Yeah, totally. And particularly because it is your mother's recipe. And very sadly, your mother died uh, just before the book came out. Uh Um, Tell us about this moment when you were photographing and recording her while she made this particular recipe.
1: I mean, yeah, it was funny to me that time because she was just completely unbothered about helping me. Like she was on the phone to her friend uh, with one hand while she was um, cooking and she was trying to watch EastEnders at the same time. And obviously the end result was like completely better than any time I've ever made it. But it was pretty much like one of the only times where I myself was forceful and purposeful about getting a recipe from her and like documenting like her and like a fraction of her culture, which is something, yeah, pretty much never done before. And I know when I write and I speak about my mum and my grandma, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, they feel the same way about wishing that they spent more time uh, kind of interrogating their family or asking them proper questions. And so it was kind of, yeah, more so speaking to that.
0: It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to keep, you know, her legacy uh, uh, alive and really celebrate that. And the book is is dedicated to her. Mm. Your, your final food moment is Irish moss fermentation and preservation. Again, looking at the similarities between all the things that we celebrate in uh, this kind of new modern British food culture and what's always been around in Jamaican food culture. Spirulina, superfoods. These are the foods from the, the land in Jamaica. When you went back to Jamaica on this personal quest and you found all these things... Was that a surprise
1: to you? I mean, literally the surprise is when you open the Sunday Times and there's like a double spread about spirulina or Irish moss inside it, or something like that. And then obviously there's like no mention of Jamaica and the Caribbean inside that double spread. And so I've, other newspapers are available. I was in a dig. That was just the first newspaper that came to my mind. Um, and so it's that, yeah, it's always about, for me, it's about that connection, like food's such a personal thing and everyone has their personal connection to food and as there's this kind of kind of gap between Caribbean food and the wider, I guess, British audience, for me, it, it helps to fill that gap by showing how people do know these foods and how they are familiar. And I feel like if I can build that familiarity, that's what will help people kind of warm to it more and get like an affinity to it more.
0: Yeah, no, I think it works. I mean, it, there's so many moments in the book where I went, wow, that's, that's really interesting. I had no idea tying up all these different loose ends the thing I love about British food culture is that I'm constantly bringing all these different threads together to create a tapestry that I didn't even know was there that for me is what modern British food culture looks like and who knew you know that's that's what's interesting you live in Berlin Riaz um you know you're talking about all this kind of coming together this tapestry or I'm talking about the tapestry but you know you're bringing together the threads in the same way yet you choose to live somewhere else.
1: Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as time moves on, family passes away. Like the idea of what home means has started to wane slightly. And you realise that sometimes, you know, when the people aren't there the house is just bricks and mortar essentially like the house doesn't have the same meaning anymore and so i guess yeah when uh especially at the beginning of the pandemic when there was such separation it seemed like a good idea and i'm always somebody as maybe it comes through in the books i'm always kind of someone who likes to be on the move someone who likes to be around and so i think that's kind of what led me to want to try and live somewhere else um, and not disregarding all political, financial topics as well at the same time. But yeah, a lot of those things kind of led me to want to try and live somewhere else and also have a crack at bringing this culture and this cuisine to somewhere slightly new as well.
0: How are you doing that in Berlin?
1: Uh, there's going to be a German version of the book that comes out hopefully soon. Um, and then there'll be, you know, we'll start doing some events. And yeah, unfortunately, well, that kind of underground DIY scene in Berlin is still there it's still you can still kind of throw events and do things on a whim and there's less kind of regulation and stuff behind that you can experiment and because the price is so cheap to to stay there relative to parts of London it means that you can kind of do those experimentations.
0: You do write though for the Evening Standard and Vice and all sorts of places I mean you do you see yourself as a commentator on on British food culture? Um,
1: yes, almost by accident, I guess, because that was never the the goal. At the time when I first went around writing the first book, um, it just so happened that food was what I was thinking of at that time, um, which is the kind of reason I decided to speak to people who own, you know, some of the oldest Caribbean food institutions in the country, some of the biggest ones. It was just that feeling that everybody eats a lot of like many people love food love learning about new cultures and so there was always that way of trying to use food as a tool to talk about social issues in a way that oftentimes I find people are slightly more receptive to than just outward political economic or historical chat
0: do you think we're getting there if British food culture is a great big melting pot which it is, you know, there's fantastic celebration of food culture, particularly in London, but also through many, many other cities. Does it reflect the way that we live in Britain?
1: Yeah, I definitely guess so. I think what's interesting for me is seeing a progression of something which I call like the diversity of diversity, in the sense that for the longest time we've kind of had these really big boxes that a lot of people have been subsumed into i.e. quote-unquote Caribbean food or quote-unquote Chinese food or Indian food and now we're seeing the cultures within those kind of being able to have the space to have their own voice and say actually you know we're from this part of this region and we're completely different from other people of this region and we don't necessarily not that they don't want to be associated but they want to have that way to narrate their own culture and their own history so I guess that's like people from Sichuan, uh, a part of China, or the Uyghur people of China, or people from different parts of India, or like I said, Guyanese or Trinity people from the Caribbean. It's that idea of championing and putting those places on the cultural map and sharing those histories and raising awareness about those different places through food. And I think that's something that is very, that you see that more and more in England, or the new cookbooks that are coming out and new pop-ups and new shops and places that are opening.
0: What would your mum say about your book? You know, she didn't live sadly to see it in print or that you had won the award. What do you think she would say? Oh, she
1: would have said that uh, I won the Nobel Prize and I won the Pulitzer and uh, it's a Sunday Times bestseller and uh, it won an Oscar and a MOBO and... <laughs> She would have just she would have embellished it completely, which was she was amazing. She was like kind of my best agent in that sense. She would have put all of her WhatsApp and all over Facebook and told the world about it. And so, yeah, that was the kind of mum she was. But yeah, at the root, she it was something that was very personal to her because she was born in England as well. So kind of sharing that dual heritage and that link back to somewhere that she was very passionate about as well. Yeah, she'd she'd be happy about that.
0: Thanks for listening. You can read the transcripts to the show at gilliesmith.com. Just click on podcasts. to get in touch on social media. I'm at cooking the books with Julie Smith on Instagram, but you can also follow my adventures in cookery with Leith's online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details. Follow the links to get the cooking the books discounts on Leith's cookery courses. And I'll see you next time.